You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Nationally, it's been estimated that more than 60% of people in jail are there awaiting trial. They have not been convicted of a crime. Over 30% of those in jail before trial are there because they cannot afford the set bail amount. That's almost 500,000 defendants. Three-quarters of pretrial detainees have been charged with a drug or property crime. Frequently, bail amounts are based on a preset schedule. They're not based on an individual assessment of a defendant's risk or threat to the public. For those unable to pay bail, they remain locked up until they either plead guilty, have their trial, or someone bails them out. They could stay in jail for days, months, and sometimes even years. The secondary effect of pretrial incarceration include people losing their jobs, losing contact with loved ones, and being unable to care for their families. Pretrial incarceration adds to jail overcrowding. It is unsafe for defendants, and it's expensive for you and me as taxpayers. Many courts across the country are implementing bail reform. Reform allows more defendants charged with lower-level crimes to stay out of custody before trial. More defendants can keep their jobs and stay in the community. It eases jail overcrowding, and it costs fewer taxpayer dollars. What has been the experience of those courts that have implemented bail reform? And what advice do they have for the rest of us? I'm Pete Keeper, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Judge Roy Wiggins, District Court Judge for the 26th Judicial District in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, which is the city of Charlotte. Welcome, Your Honor. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be here. Joining Judge Wiggins is Judge Elizabeth Trosh, also a District Court Judge in the 26th Judicial District. Judge Trosh, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, we have Sonia Harper, Director of Criminal Justice Services for the Office of the Mecklenburg County Manager. Sonia, we appreciate you joining our podcast. Thank you, Peter. Judge Trosh, can you share with our listeners what the reasoning was behind changing the court's bail and release policy? Our jurisdiction last updated the policy in 2014, and a lot had changed in terms of practice and process within Mecklenburg County from then until 2018. So the changes were initiated because we needed to bring our policy in line with tools that we now have available, like electronic monitoring through our police department and also the use of a public safety assessment that has been uh, implemented and validated in our jurisdiction. Additionally, we recognize that bail was resulting in a lot of people remaining in our jail for days, weeks, and months, despite the fact that they did not pose a safety threat and were not at significant risk of failing to appear in court. And so we wanted to evaluate the practices and the policy that could be amended in order to have a more fair process and ensuring that people who are in jail are there because they they need to be there 
as a result of posing a safety threat or a significant risk of failing to appear, and that the people who don't belong there have a meaningful opportunity to be released. Judge Wiggins, can you sum up the changes in the new policy? What has changed from the way the courts used to determine bail and release? Peter, the new policy is pretty much in line with our statutory requirements that our statute requires for pretrial release and constitutional requirements of presumption of innocence. There is a presumption both constitutionally and in the statute that release is to be presumed because everyone is presumed innocent of the crime that they're charged with at that time. The key changes basically were as followed. Previously, we had judges and magistrates had a bond table, which was a suggested bond amount for levels of crime, different types of crime, an actual number that you could look at and say, well, this is the suggested bond amount for this particular crime from zero or 10 dot, whatever, from this number to this number. We've eliminated that. And now we look at our release conditions. Basically, a judge under our new policy, the presiding judge makes a determination. Do I want to detain this individual because I believe he or she is a flight risk or he or she is a danger to the community or some other reason that may factor in? If you make that decision, unfortunately, we still the only thing we have to hold people in custody in our system now is a financial money bond. That's all we have under our current system. However, if you determine that the person is eligible for some type of release, then you look at non-financial release conditions, such as Judge Trost mentioned, electronic monitoring or other conditions that may be in place for someone or just pretrial release or unsecured bond, whatever the case may be. Once you do that, we look at what Judge Trost mentioned, we call the PSA report, the public safety assessment, and then that helps us determine what conditions to set. And we have a matrix now that, she, that Judge Trotch mentioned as well that we can look at that we have an organization called Pretrial Services. That they put together a package for the judge which has a pretrial, the, where someone falls in the matrix. A judge can decide to go with that, set where they fall in the matrix, or they can decide to do a higher or lesser degree of supervision for someone's pretrial release. Sonia, the changes went into effect in March of 2019. What have been the results so far? First, it's important to point out that we're still fairly early on in the in the process, and so it's pretty early for us to draw any real definitive conclusions. But the results from our first six months worth of data that we've collected shows that there's been some early shifts, but that we still have a little ways to go. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that this policy was a significant change in our local processes and just our overall culture, so we expected this to take some time to fully implement. Judge Wiggins, how has the community received the new bail policy? First, the new bail policy went into effect March the 1st, 2019, and it was a result of a collaboration of meetings of a committee comprised of our local senior resident Superior Court judge, our local chief district court judge, our district attorney, our public defender, our chief magistrate, and representatives from Mecklenburg County's Criminal Justice Services Department. We also had a national consultant from the MacArthur Foundation. With that being said, our policy has been implemented. In my opinion, I think we're waiting on the community for a response. I think there was overall among the players in the system, I believe the response has been very positive. Now, having said that, in my opinion, the only thing that's changed is the process by which we determine release. We are still following the statutory requirements and the constitutional requirements. I know there's been some members of the public and there's been some misinformation in our community that has been put out about this policy that has led to some consternation. But I think as, as, as the judges 
and other professionals in our court system articulate this policy, I think it's being better received in our community. Can you elaborate about what sort of misinformation has been circulated? I think that there is a feeling among some members of the community that, quote unquote, criminals are being let out of jail. And that is just clearly not the case. If a judge determines someone is a danger to the community, they will be held in jail. If a judge determines they were not, they're not a dangerous community, that person is going to be released. As I mentioned earlier, our statute and our constitution has a presumption of release unless there's a danger to the community or a flight risk. Judge Trosh, what's been your take on this? Because there is a new bail policy that utilizes the public safety assessment to assist judges in making decisions about what release conditions to impose once they've decided to release a defendant, there's been confusion in the community about what that tool is and how it is informing the decision-making process. We've been very intentional since implementing the policy change and trying to engage the community in education and learning about the policy and the fact that it does not change the law, follow the law, and that actually what we're attempting to do is equip judges with more information than we previously had to make individualized assessments of risk to public safety and risk of uh, failure to appear. My advice, given the experience that we've had with some confusion or even misunderstandings among some parts of our community, would be that anyone who looks to implement a significant change around their pretrial release policy, engage impacted communities, and even victims advocates in the process. I think that's a lesson that we have learned that others could probably benefit from as they move forward. Peter, to follow up on Judge Trush, I think Judge Trush sure. articulated that very, very well. I think the term of that there's been misunderstanding is a much, much better term than miscommunication, which I used earlier. That's a much better term. I think there has been some misunderstanding, but I do believe as we continue to go through this process, and as Judge Trush said, um, articulate our procedures and articulate our policy, see, I think it's being better received in our community. Judge Trosh? I understand North Carolina has a fairly robust bail bond interest group. How have bail bond agents received this change? They're not terribly pleased with us because, uh, obviously, when judges are being really intentional about imposing non-financial conditions of release for people that really do not belong in jail and should be at home with their families, working, and contributing to the community while their case works through our criminal justice system, that means that bail bond agents have less business than they did before because we are really focusing on using financial conditions with people who really do pose that greater risk and utilizing alternatives for those who do not. So there's definitely been some, I would say, dissatisfaction um, and even some effort to communicate a counter-narrative about what this policy is. But overall, I think that what we're doing is consistent with state law, with the United States Constitution, and frankly, it's consistent with where our state attorney general is attempting to lead the state, and it's consistent with successful initiatives that we've seen in other places like New Jersey and even Washington, D.C. state courts have have, uh, not utilized fail as a condition of release with significantly positive outcomes. Judge Wiggins, a technical question, at least for me. 
The release options in North Carolina include a promise to appear and an unsecured appearance bond. Now, what's the difference between the two? And do judges use one more than the other? Well, first of all, if a judge makes a determination that there's going to be a promise to appear, a written promise to appear, an unsecured um, bond, that's normally someone who has scored very low or relatively low on our public safety assessment. And it's typically a lower level of crime. A written promise to appear is just what it says it is. If someone has, they're in jail, we determine that they're a low risk. We determine that they're a low risk of recidivism or I mean a low risk of danger to the community or a low risk of um, returning to court or not returning to court. And we they are just allowed to literally sign their name and make a promise. They will appear back at their next court date. An unsecured bond is an actual monetary amount that's put in place that the person is responsible for if they fail to appear to appear in court. In other words, they don't have to put any money to get out of court. They're still signing themselves out, per se. But if they fail to appear in court, then that monetary requirement can come into play. Sonia, there seem to be seven options when a judge makes a release decision. Keep or place the defendant in custody, basically having the defendant in jail. An appearance bond secured by either cash or property. This is what people traditionally think of as setting bail. A promise to appear. An unsecured appearance bond. What I call third-party custody electronic monitoring, and house arrest. Are there statistics regarding how frequently each is used before and after bail reform? Those are some things that we are monitoring as part of you know, our implementation. And again, noting that we're, we're still very early into this process and, and really only have about six months of solid post-policy data. But what I can tell you is just sort of overall, I mean, we, we are still seeing you know use with secured bond. And so right now, Across the board, about 50% or so of those cases are still receiving um, secured bond. But when you go into uh, the third-party custody, which for us here in Mecklenburg County would be primarily uh, pretrial services, um, we are seeing roughly about 30% of those cases being referred. And with the unsecured uh, bonds, we're still seeing roughly about 15% of those being issued. Uh, as for the um, house arrest and the electronic monitoring, those are programs that are managed by our uh, local police department, uh, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. <laughs> and also the probation department. So unfortunately, those are not statistics that are readily available. But again, we, you know, we've seen some slight shift early on with the new policy, um, but are still, we still have a little ways to go. Bail reform is a major issue across the country. And we'll learn more about Mecklenburg County's experience after this short break. Hello, this is Kent Pankey in Richmond, Virginia. As the senior planner for the Virginia judicial system, my responsibilities include staffing commissions and study groups, conducting research, writing reports, and teaching. Almost any issue that could affect our present or a future court system is potentially relevant to my job. It's more than any one person could hope to keep tabs on. That's one of the reasons I value my membership in NACOM. National Association for Court Management. Through NACOM, I have access to valuable resources, conferences, and projects that allow me to benefit from the knowledge, skills, and abilities of court professionals around the country and the world. In turn, NACOM gives me new and different opportunities to share what I have learned in over 30 years of judicial administration work, helping to develop the next generation of court leaders. 
Nakem conferences offer excellent opportunities to network and to get exposure to new developments within our profession. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to register for the 2020 Mid-Year Conference in Charlotte, North Carolina, February 9th through 11th. The annual conference will be in New Orleans in July. Information about conferences and upcoming events can be found on the NACOM website at nacomnet.org. That's N-A-C-M-N-E-T dot O-R-G. If you aren't already a member, consider joining NACOM today. You can do so by clicking the Join Us button on the NACOM website. If you are a member, I strongly recommend getting involved by joining a NACOM committee. Find committee descriptions and meeting schedules on NACOM's website. Then simply join a committee call. You'll be glad you did. We're back with Judge Elizabeth Trosh, Judge Roy Wiggins, and Sonia Harper talking about bail, bail reform, and the experience Mecklenburg County has and is still going through. Judge Wiggins, the court uses a release conditions matrix developed by the Arnold Foundation. Can you describe the matrix? What does it do, and how well do you think it works? Well, first of all, the matrix itself is basically a combination of scores. I'm looking at a matrix right now. It has on the, it's a basically a vertical and horizontal scale. On one side is a failure to appear scale. For each failure to appear that a person has had in the past, that number will increase. And then on the, the other, the horizontal side of that is a new criminal activity scale. So each new crime that a person has been charged with, and that's pending charges and prior convictions, the higher that score comes. The lower the level of score, the matrix will provide for options, such as at a very low level. We just talked earlier about written promise to appear or unsecured bonds. As the those numbers increase in both of those categories, then there may be some, it may speak to an administrative release, such as pretrial services, or it may be something that we, that the judge would look at a high number and say, we're going to release this person, but we're going to put them on electronic monitoring. As those numbers go up, then you, that's when you get into a lot of judges look at detaining someone in those situations. For me personally, I use it every time I am in first appearance in bond hearing court. It is a very helpful tool to me as a judge, and I believe it's a very helpful tool to most judges um, because it gives a lot of information about the person that we can use in making a release or detained decision. Judge Trosh, there are a number of risk assessment tools available out there. Why did the court choose the one developed by the Arnold Foundation? The tool developed by Arnold Foundation, now Arnold Ventures, is, utilizes criteria that do not require interviews with descendants or others. The tool uses data that's readily available, and it uses objective data versus subjective data. Prior tools that we've used in our jurisdiction have looked at things like whether the defendant has a substance abuse issue or has a permanent address. Um, many of those things really do not predict risk of committing another crime or risk of failing to appear. So we are using a, uh, a tool that has been validated within our jurisdiction to pretty reliably establish probabilities of failing to appear or fa uh, committing another offense uh, during um, pretrial release. And 
we have used it to create this matrix that just sets forth presumptive release conditions that have been developed and agreed upon by our criminal justice partners and uh, after reviewing objective assessments of risk within each of those categories. Sonia, it's my understanding that the Arnold Foundation has validated its tool nationally. Does it have to be validated in Charlotte to comport with local conditions? So, yeah, so we've had the public safety assessment validated twice here locally since we started using it. Uh, And regardless if a jurisdiction decides to use the PSA or some other tool, it's it's always very important to, to have a local validation. The first and foremost reason is to make sure that the tool is predicting as it's intended there within your jurisdiction and your population. It's also important to, you know, to have that validation just sort of as a check for your local jurisdiction to make sure that you're utilizing the tool properly and that you're maintaining a fidelity to that tool and to the model. And so, yeah, so regardless of what type of tool is used, it's always important to have that local validation and that local check. And I would just like to add one additional point. The validation data has been extremely valuable in helping demonstrate to judicial officers what that risk really looks like in our community. And I think it's helped ease concerns about the shift toward non-financial conditions of release. Because when we have data that shows that the vast majority of people who are released pretrial, in fact, do appear for their court appearances and do not commit additional crimes, and that there are certain factors that really reliably predict the probability that that would happen. It increases confidence of judicial officers in the tool, and I think it helps really engage judicial officers in this sort of practice change. And I totally agree with that statement. And I think, you know, the other thing uh, to note is that uh, the matrix that you just mentioned earlier, the findings from our most recent validation really helped drive a lot of that conversation as to the revisions that were made to the matrix with this new bail policy reform that we've had here locally. And so I think, you know, anytime you have that opportunity to make data-driven decisions, particularly in criminal justice uh, policy and practice, you know, certainly try to take advantage of those opportunities. And I think that was really important for us as we were having those conversations about the changes we were wanting to make here in Mecklenburg. Sonia, what services does pretrial offer to defendants? So once a person is placed on pretrial supervision with us, we, from the very beginning, begin to work with them to help to, you know, identify and determine what are those things that they'll need to help them be successful uh, while they're in the community awaiting their court date. And so, you know, as far as the services that we provide, I mean, just across the board, we provide everyone with court reminders. Just those come in the forms of of telephone calls and then also text messages, just, again, reminding those folks of uh, upcoming court dates. If we have folks that need transportation, assistance with transportation, we are able to uh, provide bus passes uh, so that they're able to utilize our public transit here in Charlotte to get back and forth to where they need to be. Other referral services are really dependent on, again, what um, what that person needs to be successful. So that could be everything from referrals for behavioral health services. We are able to assist with some housing due in part to funding provided by Mecklenburg County, as well as from uh, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety. And so we're able to help to identify housing options and things in the community. I mean, again, it can really vary depending on what the needs are, but we definitely try to put into place 
uh, whatever it is that that individual needs to be able to be successful while they're out there in the community. Judge Wiggins, the new bail policy envisions a systematic bond review process. Have you instituted this process, and what have been the results? I am currently on a committee. I, I am currently serving as the lead criminal district court judge for our county, and I'm on a committee that consists of myself, an assistant district attorney, an assistant public defender, a representative of our pretrial services organization, a representative of the magistrate's office, a representative from the sheriff's department and Charlotte Macron Police Department. We meet approximately every month to six weeks to review our jail population and, and to see what we're doing to make sure that we are, we don't have people in jail that shouldn't be. We look at a number of things. We look at number of days people have been in jail. We look at what they're being held in jail for. We, now, as a judge, I don't look at individuals. We're looking at broad numbers. I cannot look at individual situations. That would be improper. But we look at broad numbers, such as whether or not they're being held on pending felonies, pending misdemeanors, what our ethnic breakdown, what our breakdown is as far as youthful offenders and males and females. I actually get a snapshot every day in my email box that tells me what our current jail population is. And we use this information in our meetings to help us determine if we're actually following the policy or the goals of the policy or the fundamentals or objectives of the policy that have been put forth. It's a good committee, and it's, and in my opinion, it's, it's helping us as decision makers to, to reach better, more informed decisions. Judge Trosh, how often does the court revoke a release decision? I don't think we have access to the hard numbers on that, partially because North Carolina utilizes a fairly antiquated system for court management uh, in criminal court. It's not often, and typically that occurs when someone obviously has failed to appear in court. That is an option that the judge has to revoke those conditions of release and order the defendant's arrest. Pretrial services, if they have someone on their caseload who's been released into their custody for supervision, engages in a fairly thoughtful graduated response kind of process to determining whether they will even approach a judge to make a decision on whether to revoke the release decision to be supervised by pretrial services. I mean, in my experience, it doesn't happen often. I think it happens fairly infrequently, but unfortunately, we don't really have the capacity at this time to really get a hard number. I'll follow up on that with Judge Trosh. I agree. We don't have any hard numbers on that, but I, I agree. We do see people, when I'm in first appearance in bond hearing court, we do see people that pretrial services has is asking to be removed from supervision for could be any number of reasons, failure to report, failure to stay in touch, new new allegations of new crimes. But all of those are subject to judicial review, that the, the judge can make the determination that somebody is going to be revoked off pretrial supervision. Or as a judge, I can determine that based on the information that I have, I believe this person is a candidate to remain on pretrial supervision. But it's not something I have any hard numbers on. Sonia? Have other North Carolina counties implemented a bail policy change such as yours? Have you received any feedback from those counties? There are some counties throughout North Carolina that have made some changes to their local bail policies, but I don't think anybody has taken theirs as far as we have uh, here in Mecklenburg, um, at least not yet. The really conversation about bail reform and pretrial release in North Carolina has been pretty strong over the last couple of years. And even as Judge Trosh had mentioned earlier, 
Um, you know, our North Carolina Attorney General has really made pretrial release a priority and a, a real topic of conversation. But again, none of those counties have really gone as far as we have. There are a number uh, throughout the state that are taking a look at their current policies. They're looking for ways to either offer pretrial release if they're in a county where they do not have a pretrial supervision program, or they're looking at ways to where they can expand pretrial release if they do have an existing program. Uh, so I think, you know, I think it's a very kind of exciting time in North Carolina in this area, again, because there is so much conversation and so much interest. So I'm really excited to see where the rest of the state will go. I would add to that that a few years ago, a former Chief Justice convened sort of the Blue Ribbon Task Force to look at the administration of justice in North Carolina and develop a set of findings and recommendations, among which included a recommendation that across the state we establish some kind of procedures and tools to support judges in making pretrial risk assessments. And, and to improve pretrial release decision making. And I think we have a, a new chief justice who is, is really interested in advancing that effort for the state and equipping judges across the state with, with better resources to facilitate decision making that really is based on individuals and based on risk and not just based on charges. Judge Wiggins, in some states, the possession or use of a firearm is a significant factor in a court's release decision. What role does possession of a firearm play in the court's release decisions? Possession or use of a firearm is not something that generally falls in our matrix, but that's something that a judge will hear in a factual recitation from the prosecutor about what the alleged facts are in a particular crime or of a particular person charged. And as part of your, at least as part of me, when my determination of reaching that first decision of release or detain is I do listen to the strengths of the facts of the case, and I do listen to the severity of the crime, and certainly the, whether or not a weapon was used or how a weapon was allegedly used, if, if there's strong evidence of that, will play a factor in my decision, I would imagine most judges' decisions, to make that release or detain decision. Obviously, if, there, if the facts are somewhat egregious and there was threatened use of a firearm or a firearm, probably starts leaning more toward the detention decision rather than a release decision. Again, that's not contemplated in the matrix. That's one of those other factors the judge listens to and determines based on the evidence that the court is seeing. And keep in mind that at that point in the, in the hearing, we're not making a guilt or innocence decision. The person is still presumed innocent. But we do, part of a bond decision, at least for me, is, is determine is if there's an allegation of violence to determine the strength of the allegations from the state. What advice do you have for other courts in and around the country if they are planning to amend their bail policy? Judge Wiggins? I think that you need to include all, just as we did here in Mecklenburg County, I think you need to include all the major players in the system, judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, even people from probation or from pretrial services, from other, other justice organizations within the court system. I think it needs to be a broad-based discussion. But I think that they need to look at their statutes. They need to look at our Constitution and make sure that, they, that we stay within our statutory and constitutional framework of what we're supposed to be doing. Judge Trosh? I would say uh, that I agree with, the, with what Judge Wiggins has described. It's clearly important that all of the criminal justice stakeholders participate so that you have support and buy-in around any kind of changes that are implemented. 
I think we have learned that there's also a benefit to bringing in community and victims' voices into the process at some point to uh, create a better understanding and to receive input and feedback that, that those of us who are in the executive offices of the justice system might not think of. And I would also say that there's emerging uh, body of research around pretrial release impacts and outcomes, and I think that that has been really helpful for us, particularly in engaging our criminal justice leaders, being able to share some of the studies that indicate that most people who are detained, who are low risk, actually experience the opposite effects of what we're trying to achieve when we detain them, that that money doesn't really mean that people who really are a threat to public safety or that we're really concerned about become less of a threat because they've been able to post bond. And that most people who do stay in jail with the money bond are there because they're too poor to pay. And that has nothing to do with public safety and it has nothing to do with uh, the extent to which they pose a threat to the court process by failing to appear or, or intimidating witnesses. Sonia? I think, you know, the biggest piece of advice I would offer to any jurisdiction looking to uh, make a, a bail policy changes in their, in their areas is really to just to be patient. Uh, we spent roughly a year uh, really just having discussion and reviewing data and then working to craft a new policy. And, you know, and I, now that we're at this point of implementation, I think we definitely recognize and understand that full implementation of the policy is going to take us some time, too. So I think, you know, to really have thoughtful, mindful, impactful uh, bail reform policy, you just really have to uh, to take your time and, and be patient. I think Sonia made a really important point. This takes time and it, it takes patience and it does take diligence and persistence because it took a year to get us to a policy that we and our stakeholders could agree on. But a policy doesn't change practice and practice takes time to really shift culture. So I think part of any kind of effort to do reform in this arena does require some, some real thought and focus around implementation and, and sort of how the jurisdiction will have some staying power around continual engagement, evaluation, and, um, and even regrouping, you know, as the implementation moves forward. I certainly will follow up on that, and uh, I mentioned earlier about our uh, our committee that meets every four to six weeks. I think that's part of it is an ongoing review of our procedure, of our policy, and also what Judge Cross said, that it takes time for practice to change to meet policy, and I think that's part of what our committee does is trying to see that that needle continues moving forward. My thanks to Judge Wiggins, Judge Trosh, and Sonia for sharing their court's experience with bail reform. This is a burning issue across the country. We're grateful to hear about the lessons learned in Charlotte. Judge Trosh, thanks for sharing your experiences. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Judge Wiggins, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I Honestly, as I've listened to my colleagues, Sonia and Judge Trosh, I feel like I learn more every time I have these conversations. Sonia, I'm grateful for you sharing your insights. Thank you, Peter. I just I really appreciate the opportunity for us to be able to, to, to share our experience. So thank you. 
Now let's answer a listener question. Melissa Bender, Assistant Court Administrator for the Henderson Municipal Court in Henderson, Nevada, emailed in a question about our November episode on social media and the courts. Here to ask that question is Melissa, and here to respond is Stephen Thompson, one of our guests on that episode. Stephen is the Public Information Officer for Florida's 6th Judicial Circuit. So, Melissa, what's your question? Thank you. Um, With the confidential matters that bring people to the courthouse facility, should an individual's privacy play a role in permitting audio and video recording in the public areas of the facility, for example, outside of the courtroom? Or should people not expect privacy when coming to courthouses since they are public buildings and court hearings are largely open to the public? Stephen, what do you think? There are two ways in which we need to look at courthouses. We need to look at first the courtrooms themselves, and secondly, the common areas outside the courtroom. In the courtrooms themselves, the media generally has the right to audio and video record pretty much all proceedings with a few exceptions. In Florida, those exceptions are adoptions and hearings where parental rights are being terminated. Even in extremely sensitive situations, say a child is testifying about her tragic experience as a sexual assault victim in a criminal rape case, the mainstream media still has the right to audio and video record the proceeding. We trust that the TV station or newspaper photographer does not identify that child, perhaps by blurring her face or using voice-altering technology, but the media still has the right to record her. If an entity other than the media wants to audio and video record a proceeding, that request is put before the presiding judge and the presiding judge gets to make the decision. All of this is articulated in Florida through rules of judicial administration, which are handed down by the Supreme Court, and administrative orders, which are handed down by the chief judge. Now, let's talk about the areas outside the courtroom. You know, hallways, for instance, or lobbies, or areas near the entrance where people need to be screened for security purposes by the local law enforcement agency. According to one school of thought, we're talking about a public building whose construction was funded by taxpayer dollars. And so, Any Tom, Dick, and Harry should be allowed to walk around willy-nilly videotaping whatever they see. But there are a few problems with this approach. One is a courthouse, while a public building, is a place where people expect to conduct their business without ending up on some YouTube video. And the reason they expect this is because there is somewhat of an expectation of privacy. We all need to understand that when people come to courthouses, it's usually for a sensitive matter. Divorce, civil suits, criminal prosecutions, or dependency cases where a parent risks losing custody of a child, to name a few. They are not coming to a courthouse to register to vote or to pay a water bill. Along the same lines, it is my understanding, and I might point out at this point that I am not a lawyer, that a courthouse has been recognized as a limited public forum and so may carry restrictions that differ from a public forum such as a public sidewalk. The first clue that the court has a right to restrict access is the security at the front entrance that all must successfully pass before entering. You might then ask, under what authority can court administration do anything to prevent someone from audio and videotaping in the hallways and other common areas? Well, in Florida, there's a rule of judicial administration that gives the chief judge the authority to prohibit audio and videotape in the hallways. Just last month in Broward County in Florida, the chief judge signed an order prohibiting anyone from audio and video recording anything inside a court building 
in the 17th Circuit, which is the circuit in which Broward is located, that has anything to do with security. And anyone found to insist on video or audio recording in those areas will be escorted out of the building and possibly face contempt proceedings. Thank you. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Be sure to catch next month's episode. Does your court limit smartphone use in the courthouse? Many courts think we need to revisit our policies on smartphones. In February, we'll be talking about NACOM's upcoming resolution on cell phones and courts. Until then, I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.